everybody. Welcome to Delta Dispatches, where we're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. This is Samoma Laws with Restore or Retreat. I'm without shock again today. We'll see if we can make this work. Uh, just a reminder, if you like to hear us together, you can catch the podcast on MississippiRiverDelta.org backslash Delta Dispatches. Uh, you can listen to past episodes and you can also subscribe to our weekly podcasts on iTunes and Google Play. We've been talking about Gomesa a lot. We had an action alert that we've talked about on several shows to say why we think that Gomesa needs to be included in the president's budget. There was a hearing today um, or there's a hearing on Wednesday on Capitol here to talk about opportunities uh, for Gomesa and how uh, that can help Louisiana's coast. So we'll try to have all of that posted on our website, uh, which is, again, MississippiRiverDelta.org, or you can check out our Facebook pages or our Twitter. Um, also, a reminder that there are some scoping meetings coming up for the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion, something else that we talk a lot about on the show the meetings are scheduled to take place um, from 5 to 8. There's an open house, and then there's a presentation, and then there's a public comment period. And those meetings are July 20th in Lafitte at the Multipurpose Complex, July 25th in Bell Chase uh, at the auditorium there, and July 27th at the Port Sulphur Community Center. Uh, there are some Facebook event pages. You can RSVP on Facebook. And then you can also read more about the scoping meetings and the EIS process on the Mississippi River Delta blog called Your Voice is Needed for Our Coast. Attend upcoming Mid-Barataria scoping meetings. And again, that's at MississippiRiverDelta.org. So we have a great show lined up today. We want to talk about mapping Louisiana's coast, and we're actually going to talk about two different kinds of mapping. Uh, so we're very, very pleased to have our first guest who's making the headlines this week. Uh, we want to welcome Brady to the show. Brady, hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. We just said that you're making the headlines this week, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a new report on coastal wetland change out today and uh, has some interesting findings. Great, great. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But, um, Brady, I'm a Terrio, right? So you got a nice Cajun name. Is it Cuvion? Cuvion. Cuvion. I like it. I like it. So Brady's actually a geographer with the Coastal Restoration Assessment Branch of USGS, Wetland and Aquatic Research Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, some of his research topics commonly include wetland morphology, vegetation monitoring, applications of remote sensing to natural resource assessments, and landscape modeling and forecasting. That sounds like a lot, Brady. When you were a little Brady, did you ever dream that you would do this? when you grew up? I, I didn't. Um, you know, really, when I was growing up, I wanted to go into a career where I wouldn't be behind a desk all day. <laughs> and, and now where am I? I'm behind a desk most days. Um, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Somebody get the occasional... Yeah, we do get the occasional opportunity to go out in the field, and those, those days are really enjoyable. Yeah, but you get to look at maps a lot. You could teletransport yourself there, right, Brady? <laughs> I do, I do. I spend a lot of my time looking at satellite images of the coast and how it's changing, and it's, it's very enjoyable to, to, you know, constantly be studying uh, this very dynamic environment. So we do like to talk about, you know, kind of different, different jobs that you can have in coastal Louisiana. So really, how, how did you get to be uh, interested in, in being a geographer? You went to LSU, I think, right? I did. I went to LSU for both my undergraduate and graduate uh, studies. Um, when I was an undergraduate, graduate, uh, 
uh, courses. I was more so looking at uh, going into various uh, fields of environmental studies, uh, including forestry. And when I got into that, I, I sort of, you know, we spent some time in the field, and I kind of noted that, you know, a crew of researchers in the field could maybe study an acre, maybe 10 acres, at most 100 acres in a day if you, you know, had a particularly well-designed sampling scheme. Uh, and I saw the application of remote sensing to be able to sort of scale up, and that one person could study thousands or tens of thousands of acres in a day. Uh, and so that, that really appealed to me to be able to look at things from, you know, a much, a much broader scale. Very, very interesting. So it's safe to say, Brady, you know, every square inch or at least every square mile of Louisiana, you have a ton of publications. But one of the most notable um, that people probably um, might recognize is your land area change map with the first map um, from 1932 to 2010. Um, that That is grounded in so much of what we do and so much in the education of how we talk to the people in Louisiana who know that we've been losing land, but that puts some numbers to it. So let's talk about, you know, you've done this, and, and I think you did that. That might have been maybe 2005, Brady, is that right? Or around? Uh, our latest report was uh, from 2011, but, you know, what's, what's important here is there have been, you know, several uh, researchers researching this topic uh, uh, throughout the years. I think Gagliano was one mm-hmm. of the first yeah, to, sure. we know to Woody. recognize mm-hmm to recognize this problem and actually start to put some numbers to it back in the early 70s. Uh, and since that time, there have been several, uh, you know, amazing scientists studying this problem. What we did with the 1932 through 2010 study was we tried to provide increased temporal resolution. And so we studied a lot more dates. So rather than just looking at, you know, a pre-date and a post-date and drawing some conclusions, uh, we looked at, in that particular study, I believe 17 dates through time. And so we were able to give information of not only how much we have lost in terms of wetland area, but when that wetland loss occurred. And that really helps to understand what the causal mechanisms of that loss may be. Yeah, it's so neat to see, and we've seen it in the master plans, right, that science has changed, and, and, and so science has grown and advanced, and so you're able to apply that in all kind of different ways to help us to better understand the issues. But just on a, a really high level, Brady, I mean, you've studied this for a while now. How have you seen Louisiana's coast change during all your years of study? Well, you know, I think uh, the word that comes to mind is drastically. Um, I mean, we're talking about 2,000 square miles of loss here over the past 84 years. We're talking about more coastal wetland loss than all other states in the United States combined. Um, You know, we're talking about a land area approximately equivalent to the entire state of Delaware. So this is a massive, massive issue, and you never look at the coast on one day and look at it the next day and see the same coast. Yeah, it's so, it's so, I love to hear you say things like that about, you know, the uh, land area, the size of Delaware. I mean, that's what really, you know, people understand and they can put it, you know, they can really think about that in terms of, you know, what's accessible to them. And I know recently uh, you got asked the question about a football field of land uh, per hour and your new study does change some of that, but that um, putting it in in terminology and things like that is very easy for people to understand um, what they've already seen, um, but it it puts it in a way that they um, they can explain it to other people about the loss. So, 
Um, wait, right. I did. I did see that you also you did a lot of work after Katrina and some of the storms, right? To study some of the land loss after um, after those storms. But one of the things I saw that you did some some interesting work regarding people and raw nine one one call data. So, if you're willing, talk about that a little bit. That seems really fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Katrina was a terrible storm which impacted our coastal wetlands, but more importantly, it had devastating impacts on the people of the Gulf Coast. And while normally we, we research coastal wetlands, and, you know, initially following Hurricane Katrina, we were gearing up to go out into the wetlands and study the impacts of the storm on the wetlands, uh, you know, we started to hear the reports of the flooding in New Orleans, and shortly thereafter, we got a call from the Office of Emergency Preparedness um, asking if we had the ability to translate addresses into latitude and longitude coordinates. And we said, well, well, yes, we do. You know, that's a GIS function. It's called geocoding. It's not what we normally do, but, yes, we have that ability. And they said, okay, we're going to send you a database with a couple of thousand, and in a couple of hours we'll have a few more thousand uh, addresses, and we need you to turn those around and give us latitude and longitude coordinates so that the helicopter pilots and the rescuers in boats can actually have something they can plug into their GPS and find these homes. Because what you have to understand is the 911 system was largely reliant upon street signs and, you know, house numbers on houses in order to find the locations of people requesting help. Um, Well, you know, Hurricane Katrina presented this unfortunate situation where most of those street signs and house numbers were underwater. And so it wasn't something, you know, that, that had really, you know, crossed a lot of people's minds. What if all the street signs are flooded? Right, uh, right. But we were able to sort of, you know, uh, take a function with this and GIS, make a few, a few changes, and start turning those addresses into latitude and longitude uh, coordinates so that rescuers could find those people. That is so, so neat. Um, Brady, if you hold on just for a little bit, we're going to take a break right now. We want to talk about some big lessons that you've learned from your past work really quickly, but we want to talk about your new report. It's really, really fascinating. So hold on. Uh, We're we're on Delta Dispatches right now. We're going to be back with Brady Cousillon from USGS. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress that has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats, 
for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. I'm Simone Laws of Restore or Retreat without my partner in crime, Jacques Hebert of Audubon, Louisiana. But we do have on Brady Cuvion of USGS. Brady's a geographer and is talking about some of his latest, um, uh, his latest report that's out. So, Brady, let's just jump into the new report. Let's talk about it a little bit. Um, it was time for a revision. Yeah, the, our last update of this report uh, went through 2010, and, uh, you know, there, there's, you know, definitely a lot of interest. People want to know what's, what's happening, how are things changing, and so it was time for an update of this report. This latest report uh, goes through 2016. So just tell us very quickly, we're going to hit the headline, right? And then we, I really want to get into the details of it. So if you had to caption a headline for your report, what would it be? Um, you know, I would say, you know, the real story here is that the rate of net wetland loss is decreasing. Okay? Decreasing. We're still ex- decreasing, yeah. And so, you know, a measured source of positive news. Um, and, you know, we want to emphasize that, uh, you know, things could change. Um, and, you know, wetland change is a constantly changing process. Uh, and so, you know, if we experience a hurricane this year or, you know, we're definitely, you know, uh, projected to see increased rates of sea level rise, that rate could increase again. But, you know, uh, actually since about the late 1970s, we've been seeing a decrease in the rate of net wetland loss. Uh, we're still losing wetlands, you know, uh, but the rate at which we're experiencing net wetland loss is decreasing. So, um, so Brady, storms certainly are one of the reasons why um, that, that attributes to land loss, right? So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, you know, after the storms of 2005 and 2008, which included Hurricanes Katrina, Rita, Gustav, and Ike, we were definitely, uh, you know, showing some very, very low estimates of land area as a result of those storms. When you look at what has happened since those storms, uh, since 2008, with the exception of Hurricane Isaac in 2012, it's been a relatively calm period in terms of tropical activity, uh, in terms of impacts to uh, Louisiana's coastal wetlands. That period of relative calm in terms of tropical activity is likely contributing to this decrease in wetland loss rate. So are there other factors, Brady? Um, yeah, you know, there are several possible factors. This study did not uh, specifically assign causes uh, to the change rates. Um, but, you know, some of the theories uh, are, you know, the relatively calm period in, in, in terms of tropical activity over the past eight years. Um, you know, one of the factors contributing to this decrease in net wetland loss rate are some successes in coastal restoration and protection activities. Yeah. We're starting to see some of the effects of some of the coastal restoration projects that are being put on the ground by state and federal agencies, uh, you know, and, and their influence is starting to show up in the coastwide uh, net, land, net land area numbers. Um, you know, they're usually smaller projects, and, you know, they have a small effect in terms of the, the coastal net land area numbers, uh, but in specific areas they can have a tremendous impact. 
Yeah, and I, I do want to just go back to something that you said a little bit earlier. Um, Bren Haas had a had a great way to say this. You know, it's it's encouraging that the rates are slow, slowing down. That's what you said, right? But they're, they're, it's still happening. And uh, Bren's line, uh, Bren, who's been a past guest here on Delta Dispatches, ha- said that past performance is no indication of future gains, right? We're still looking at subsidence, sea level rise, and, and those impacts of hurricanes. Right. And so just because rates have decreased in the past doesn't mean, you know, that they're going to continue to decrease in the future and they could actually increase in the future. And actually all models indicate that they will indicate, uh, increase in the future. Uh, so this is a study of, of history, what has happened. This is not a projection of what may happen in the future, but, you know, all of these studies which have looked at, you know, uh, what may happen in the future suggest that or indicate that wetland loss may again increase. So, Brady, uh, we've, I just brought up the master plan a little bit. Do, does some of your work help inform the master plan? Uh, absolutely. Some of the, the uh, rates that we calculate from historical uh, change are used to inform uh, the models which project possible uh, wetland change in the future. Okay, so, um, Brady, what is your... And we're talking a football field every hour, right? Yeah, I love that uh, they've asked you to break down that so many times about what that really means. But why don't you tell us what this new report, if you had to, if you had to compare it to the football field, what what is that number? And then also talk about how, how you get there, right? Like it doesn't mean that literally every hour or however many minutes we're losing a football field, right? So let's talk about what the maybe the new number is, and then let's break it down how we use that catchphrase. Right. You know, that, that analogy is, uh, you know, one that is often misquoted. An educational tool. Have, <laughs> right. And we have sort of a love-hate relationship yeah, with that right. statement. We absolutely love the public awareness that the analogy has provided. Like you mentioned, it's, it's an incredibly valuable educational tool. You know, scientists, we get wrapped up in numbers like square kilometers. And if I say, you know, long-term average wetland loss rate of 42.9 square kilometers per year, that's hard to visualize. Yeah. It's hard to visualize for anybody, even, even you know, it's hard for me to visualize, and I'm a geographer. Um, so, you know, putting it in terms of something that everyone can recognize has a tremendous value. Unfortunately, it's often misquoted and misunderstood. Um, and, you know, it comes across that every, you know, unfortunately, people sometimes misunderstand it to mean uh, every single hour that passed during that time period, one football field was lost. That's right, in the literal case. sense. Right, in the literal sense. It's a long-term average. And, you know, coastal wetland loss is, is, you know, a dynamic process. There are some hours which go by where, you know, no coastal wetlands are lost or, you know, you might even gain coastal wetlands. And then there are other hours which pass where you might lose thousands in an hour during mm-hmm. a disturbance event, for example. So that's definitely a long-term average. But even within those long-term averages, there is variability. And, you know, we mentioned that rates have been slowing since the late 1970s. In the late 1970s, the rate of long-term average wetland loss was closer to a football field's worth of wetlands per 34 minutes. Wow, 34. faster than an hour. Yeah. So, um, and, and, you know, we've been slowing... And our most recent estimate in terms of long-term average wetland loss rates is approximately a football field per 100 minutes. 100. So 
per And not literally. Minutes. Not literally. That doesn't mean that every 100-minute period that passes, one football field's worth of wetlands are lost. But it's just to put things into perspective so that people can sort of visualize the scope of the problem. So, Brady, you, you do amazing work. Where can we find you online or where can we find the report? And, and do you have a Twitter handle? Tell us, give us all the, the info. Well, this latest report is available at pubs.er.usgs.gov slash publication slash SIM3381. Oh, goodness gracious. Um, we'll have that online. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is, it, it's probably far easier to Google USGS. Fair enough. <laughs> SIM3381 to find our latest version of the report. All right, Brady, thank you so much for being on with us. We loved having you. We hope to have you on soon. Thank you for your great work. It informs what we do every day. All right, thank you. Thanks, Brady. Hold on just a second. We'll be back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on 990 WGSO. Restore a Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. This is Simone Malaz. I'm missing my partner in crime who's working away from NOLA today. Boo. We're here every Thursday on 990 WGSO and online through our new podcast. Check out and like the Restore the Mississippi River Delta and Restore Retreat Facebook pages. We have our second guest on our Mapping Louisiana's Coast theme episode. We are very lucky to have somebody that I like very much, Dr. Scott Hemmerling. Welcome to Delta Dispatches, Scott. Hey, Simone. Great to be here. How's your summer going? It is going well. It's going by much too fast. <laughs> All right. Scott Hemmerling, PhD, is the Director of Human Resources. That's funny. Human Dimensions. That, human Dimensions. I was like, resources? He doesn't do personnel. Uh, for the Water Institute of the Gulf and focuses on research related to climate adaptation and community resilience. He has more than 10 years of experience investigating uh, anthropology anthropogenic, wow, alterations to the landscape and the impacts of development on coastal communities. What does that mean, Scott? Tell us. Well, we look at the impact. So anthropogenic would be man-made changes. So what changes are occurring on the landscape caused by human interaction? In addition to, you know, the natural changes such as, you know, climate change, things like that. But the built environment, the development of roads, levees, coastal restoration projects, things like that. So we really look at the impacts of all of these components on the communities. You know, for some, in a lot of cases, we see positive influences. A lot of 
cases we see negative influences. So it's really trying to dig down and just really look at how these changes affect communities. We've all seen the red maps and green maps of the coast, but we really try to put the people into those red and green areas and really explain what it means to live in these areas. Yeah, I think I think this is uh, not going to be strange news to you, but I love your work that you add the human science to. We just had Brady Cuvion on with USGS, who was talking about his latest land loss report. But you really add that that human dynamic to that. You work at the Water Institute. There's tons of great people over there that I love. We've had Dr. Denise Reed on to talk about deltas and diversions. Amy Wald. Maybe one day we'll get your big boss to come on the show. Justin, uh, we'll get him to come on one day. But really, this is this is just as important of a science, that human dimension. So Scott, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got even to this work, how you got to Louisiana. Give us some details. Well, it's kind of a, a long and winding road that led me That's here. how it always goes. <laughs> Actually grew up in Buffalo, New York, and got my undergraduate degree back in 1992 from State University of New York at Buffalo. I studied environmental science and physical geography and then spent a few years as an emergency response worker doing hazmat work. So, you know, I'd be the person getting the call at two in the morning to fly out to (laughs) an oil spill in Philadelphia, go don the Tyvek suit, put on the respirator, get out there, clean up, long hours, go back home, did that for a couple of years and then, you know, long story short, got put on an outdoor water project in Buffalo 12 hours a day in December. Oh, and I don't know how many of no you. No wonder you ended I, up in Louisiana. <laughs> I literally, one day when I stepped down off of the 10,000 gallon tank of water I was standing on, went down to warm my hands up on you know, the portable generator we had there, melted my melted my gloves oh. and go back and decon <laughs> and change out all. And I was like, yeah, pretty much almost to the day. I said, that's it. Gave my two weeks notice at work, made a new year's resolution not to live one day in 1995 in Buffalo and <laughs> new year's day drove down. To oh, new how Orleans many people have made and, that resolution? <laughs> and then when I was in new Orleans, I worked at the Audubon zoo for oh, cool. about four years. So, mm-hmm. and at the, at the same time I was working on my master's degree at UNO, and then my wife and I moved to Baton Rouge, and I got my PhD under Craig Colton at LSU. Yeah, you used to work at USGS too, though, right, Scott? Maybe this is our USGS-themed show and not not mapping Louisiana. I went went to graduate school with Brady and worked with Brady at USGS. Cool, cool. So when when I was at LSU, and I was working on my dissertation looking at environmental justice impacts to the oil industry in coastal Louisiana for MMS. After I turned in those reports, an opening came with USGS. So I went and worked for the National Wetlands Research Center, and I was there for about seven years before, you know, the chance to actually really get into the human dimensions work really came open when Craig Colton came to the Water Institute and, you know, the opportunity to come to this brand new research institute and do the work that I was trained for, it really, you know, gave up my permanent full-time federal position and came to the Water Institute. And, you know, it's 
It's been a whirlwind since then. (laughs) I'd say, right? Y'all had a big announcement this week. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I want to kind of jump around some. I want to talk about um, Louisiana's Coastal Atlas. I want to talk about your work there. You are a total rock star to me. You you can buy the Coastal Atlas at Target. Like, Scott, that's amazing that you can you have something that you, you can buy in Target, but it's so much more important than that. Um, tell us a little bit about Louisiana's Coastal Atlas, um, what it is and uh, what it means, really. Okay, well, the Atlas, it started off as really a small project that that we were working on here at the Water Institute where we wanted to identify, you know, a few variables that show coastal change across the coast. And as I started really digging into it, and we wanted to look at things from a historical perspective. So, you know, roughly around mid-century, 1950-ish, up to present. But we really, you know, as I started delving in and started thinking about it from a resilience framework, what variables make up resilience? How can we really look at how resilience changes over you know, the last 50 or 60 years and realize that the story really could not be told in just a limited number of math. There's so many variables that go into life in coastal Louisiana. There's so many kind of push and pull factors, why people go towards the coast, why people move away from the coast, the impacts of you know, whether it's storms or extreme rainfall events or drought or kind of, you know, the economic drivers, whether it's agriculture, industry, fisheries, that really cause populations to shift and move around the coast. So it really, as we started gathering this data together, pretty quickly realized that this, this needs to be told in a... We need a bigger venue to tell this because there's so much, so much history, so many things that cause coastal change. And... You know, and, and it turned into the Atlas. We worked with LSU Press to get it published and went through a, you know, a really long process to make sure that we would put out something that really, from a scientific perspective, would really hold its weight, but also that someone, you know, whether you know, college students, high school students, that people can take this and it's really something that you can look at and understand and begin to think about what life in coastal Louisiana means. And, you know, the things that really you know, some of the risks we face, some of the ways that we're addressing it. So we can look at how things change in the past up until things like the Coastal Master Plan, really an innovation of, you know, we've gone from kind of a process where we have a lot of one-off projects around the coast, this really integrated framework. But it's not just the Coastal Master Plan. It's really understanding that we do need this broad coastal framework, but there's things we can do on the, you know, local and community levels you know, whether it's, you know, bioswales or rain gardens, these little local things that really improve the sense of place and can, you know, reduce some of the nuisance flooding, you know, that's as much a part of life in coastal Louisiana as building a lot of the large projects in the levees. So it really was just trying to tell this really complicated story and doing it visually, using the maps, letting the, you know, the maps really tell you what's going on. And you can see it in the atlas, the way we laid it out, it's kind of an introductory atlas and then, or an introductory kind of text portion to each chapter and then just showing the maps and really letting, letting the maps, letting the data tell the story. Yeah, so more than 250 vibrant maps really telling the history of adaptation through Louisiana. Scott, before we go to break, tell us where we can get that atlas. You have to have one besides just Target. (laughs) 
well, it's on, I actually noticed that it's on Amazon, and I, you know, strangely enough, I've actually seen, they have a, a few used copies on there. So. <laughs> yeah, but, so it's on Amazon, L- I think LSU, LSU Press. Press, yeah. Yep, yeah, LSU Press is probably, you know, that's, that's where I would definitely recommend going, but yep, if you head to LSU Press to their website, and you can find the link to it, and they'll have some samples of the maps, and Yep. Got to check it out. Um, Scott, will you hang on with us through the break and we'll get back to some of your current work at the Water Institute? Certainly. That'd be great. Okay. Hold on just a second. We'll be back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on 990 WGSO. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. I'm Samoma Laws. Today we're talking about Louisiana's coast, its people, its wildlife, and why it matters. I am without Jacques Hebert today, but I am lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Scott Hemmerling. Welcome back. Hey, Simone. So, um, as Director of Human Dimensions at the Water Institute of the Gulf, some of your current work has you still doing some community mapping, right? You did some very interesting work in Dalcom and St. Bernard. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those projects? Yeah, this was a, a project that we did for Louisiana Sea Grant, and it was a, a joint project between our coastal, ecolo- our coastal ecology section and the human dimension section here at the Water Institute. And really what we were trying to do with this was start thinking about how the environment and kind of ecosystem-based adaptation can be used to protect communities that are outside of the levees. So we started off with some, you know, had some, a scientific workshop where we brought in about 40 scientists, about half natural scientists, half social scientists, to really discuss all components of the ecosystem from, from kind of the ecological components, but also the cultural and the social value of of these ecological components. And once we had these data, we actually went out to the communities and we did some community mapping workshops in, as you mentioned, Delcom and St. Bernard. And what we wanted to do there was really start getting the lived experience, the sense of place that people get from being in these communities. We wanted to find out what people value in the communities and what they see as sources of threat. So we did and we use a local knowledge mapping method where we, you know, we pulled a group of about 15 people together for our first meeting and really just had people identify places that they value in their communities. And we didn't put any restrictions on value because what is important to the people is what's important to them. So if it's the place where they've had their family reunion for the last 40 years and they feel that that is a place of that market down and one of our anthropologists who work with us here, she recorded some conversations with people and, you know, to, you know, we have really strong qualitative data to really tie some of the things that people identified on the maps to the things people say about it and really trying to get an idea of that sense of place. And at the same time, we wanted to identify sources of threats in the communities. So, for example, in Delcom, a lot of people talked about when a south wind comes, how much water comes out of the Delcom Canal and floods the communities. It doesn't even take a storm to do that. And, you know, that might be a well-known fact to a lot of people in that area, but when they started talking about it, and, you know, we wanted to include, like, teachers in this group. And you have a teacher say, you know what, a lot of the houses here are elevated, 
but when, you know, when we have the south wind and it floods the streets, our kids can't get to school. So these are kind of the stories that, that really tell a different, it tells a different story yeah, in the way that absolutely. life in the coast is like. So, and we did the same thing in St. Bernard out at the Islaño Center down there. And we really, and we took all of these data and turned it into really a, we were able to map it out and get a value surface and a threat surface based on community knowledge. And, you know, really part of what we're trying to do here is really gather this important information that these communities have, their local ecological knowledge, their community knowledge, their historical knowledge, and getting it into a framework where, you know, folks at CPRA can use it and they can look and say, okay, here's, you know, here's a place that communities value. How are we doing in protecting that? What is there more we can do to protect it? So it really was a way to, you know, pull that, you know, and, and Sea Grants had a, you know, a really sure, yeah, great definitely. history of doing that. And we're really building off of some of the work that they've done with some of the fishermen and really taking that work from the boats into the communities. So it's really a way to get this knowledge out there and put it, like I said, in a framework where you can use it, where, you know, the folks doing the modeling or looking at coastal change or doing, you know, a lot of the, you know, the really good engineering work that's going on in the coast, you can start, you have a data set that you can look at and say, you know, here's, here's, what, here's what people value in the community. Exactly. How are we doing in protecting it? So I think that's really the important part of this. And there's other, you know, other components and other directions we can take it. And like I said, when I mentioned, you know, you know, if we have someone from the community who's lived there for 40 years, they can tell us important things about that community and places of value and just what is important. Why do people stay in coastal Louisiana? Yeah, all it's important, not, all very important questions exactly. and answers that we need to document. I, I personally am looking forward to working with you on mapping even more communities and, and using um, Delcom and St. Bernard as an example. So as we wrap it up, Scott, where can we find information maybe more about that community mapping work? Do you have a Twitter handle, Facebook? Where can we find out more information from the Water Institute? Give us all the details. Yep, if you go to www.thewaterinstitute.org, you can go there. You can read all about the work we're doing. We have links to all of our reports, not just the stuff that I'm doing, but a lot of the other really great science that's going on here at the Institute. You can also kind of keep up with some of the, the work we're doing. And as, you know, as we go out and do more of the, the community-type activities like this, we'll be sure to keep that, keep that on there as well. So. And Amy Wald, made you get a Twitter handle? <laughs> Y'all are also uh, on Twitter, right? Uh, follow the Water Institute. They have some great information. Okay, so very quickly, Scott, fun question. Um, if you had to go anywhere on vacation this summer, where would you go? <laughs> Delcom? <laughs> you know, they actually do have a really great... Bed and breakfast. That's also a crawfish farm in Delco. Dying to go. <laughs> there to. you go. But, you can you can work for your uh, overnight stay. But I but I would I would absolutely love to get back to Northern California a little nice. bit, where I where I spent about three years of my childhood. Yeah. And I look back, and now that my daughter's old enough to go out and appreciate these things really get out there and see some of the, the national parks out west. Awesome. And, 
Good answer. Good answer. You never know what people are going to come up with. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on, Scott. We'd love to have you on again sometime and try to try to get your boss to come on one time. I keep telling Justin I'm going to have him on one day. But thank you so much for being on, Scott. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. Uh, thank you, guys. We're going to wrap up this uh, latest episode of Delta Dispatches. Just a reminder that the Mid-Barataria public meetings are scheduled to take place from 5 to 8 p.m. on July 20th in Lafitte, July 25th in Bell Chase at the Auditorium, and July 27th in Port Fulton on Port Sulphur at their community center. Uh, the Mississippi River Delta group has some RSVPs on Facebook, has more information, but then you could read more about the scoping meetings and what the EIS process is even about on the blog, on the website, your voices needed, attend upcoming Mid-Barataria scoping meetings. You can also find more news on Restore or Retreat's Facebook page and on Twitter, including information about a recent trip we took out to Whiskey Island. Uh, we had the opportunity to go out with parish officials from Terrebonne Parish and the Terrebonne Parish Levy District to check out um, the CPRA's latest project on Whiskey Island. Uh, that project uses dollars set aside from the damages to natural resources that occurred during the 2010 oil spill. So thank you, Terrebonne Parish, for the invite, and thank you to Terrebonne Levy District for the ride out there. It's a great project. Uh, check out the pictures, and you can find the article on homatoday.com. Also on our website, we uh, have some information about a recent initiative announced earlier this week between Scott's organization, the Water Institute of the Gulf, and the Louisiana Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority authority and a Dutch research institute called Deltaris that's going to help collaborate. Uh, it's going to form a collaboration for um, projects that can protect and restore Louisiana's coast while applying solutions worldwide. The governor was at a press conference earlier this week. You can actually watch that press conference live and find more information about that collaboration on our website. And as always, there's more helpful information on Mississippi River Delta's website as well, and that is Mississippi River Delta.org. And you can, like I said, you can find out that blog post about the EIS meetings and tons of helpful information. So once again, you've been listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter um, at Restore Retreats, at S Malaws, at Restore Delta, and at Jacques. Bear missing my friend. We'll talk to you again next week on Delta Dispatches.